Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, December 29th, the last podcast of 2005. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. With this week, Chris Colby, editor of Brew Your Own Magazine, joins us to talk about Vienna lagers. And we head to a location you might not expect to find good examples of the style south of the border. Well, let's jump right into the show by looking into the mailbag. As I've, you know, I've said this before, and I want to say it again, I appreciate all the mail we get from listeners across the country and around the world, and it would be a podcast in itself to read all of it. So if you don't hear your email on the show, it doesn't mean it's any less appreciated. I do do my best to answer each one uh, as quickly as I can. Paul from Columbus, Ohio writes in to say he especially enjoyed our show on kegging with Andy Sparks of the Home Brewery, but he has a question about bottles. Paul writes, I've been brewing off and on for 20 years, had some good ones and a few bad. My question is about storing the beer after it's brewed, which is the best way for bottles to sit, upright or on the bottle's side, like wine. Does it matter? Well, Paul, I believe the reason you store wine bottles on their sides is to keep the cork from drying out with beer bottles at least most of them, you don't have to worry about that. I store my homebrew vertically to allow the sediment to settle to the bottom so I can decant the beer off of it more easily. But I don't think you'd hurt anything if you had to store your beer bottles on their sides for some reason. Dan from Wake Forest, North Carolina, writes that he caught the homebrewing bug after seeing the Good Eats show with Alton Brown. Since Dan started homebrewing about three months ago, he's brewed five batches, so... He's hit the ground running. Good for you, Dan. Dan writes to get some feedback on an experiment he's doing with his latest batch. He says, I've read that lambics are difficult to recreate at home, but being the experimental type that I am, I'm trying a shortcut that I wanted to share with you. Perhaps you can tell me if you think it will work. I took two and a half gallons of my honey wheat towards the very end of the primary fermentation and racked it to a carboy on top of two 12-ounce cans of Oregon brand raspberries. I then added a full bottle of raspberry lambic, making sure to get the yeast sediment from the bottom of the bottle. Uh, Dan says, I plan to leave it in the carboy for a few months, then bottle for several more months after that. Do you think that my beer will pick up any of the traditional lambic flavors from the wild yeasts, or will I most likely just have a raspberry-flavored wheat beer? Well, Dan, I don't know. I'll I'll bet whatever you get will be good, but I don't know if you'll get any of the wild yeast flavors that you're after. It may depend on the condition of the yeast in the bottom of your bottle and whether the brewer used the yeast you're looking for in the uh, the bottling stage. Sometimes brewers use one strain of yeast for primary fermentation and then pitch another strain at bottling. What you might want to do next time is to make a starter and pitch the yeast sediment from your commercial bottle-conditioned beer, uh, first of all, to see if it's viable, and then to see if it has the taste characteristics that you're after. Now, I've asked Dan to keep in touch and let us know how this experiment turns out, so I'm interested to see how, uh, how that turns out. Now, Jerry from Tallahassee, Florida, writes in to say he finally had time to watch our video podcast on his big-screen TV, and, uh, <laughs> Jerry, that's a scary thought, uh, Steve, and, Steve and me on the big screen. Um, Jerry says he watched the video while drinking his Christmas stout, and he felt like he was right there with us. 
Jerry also says he's looking forward to the all-grain DVD that we're working on. Now, I've had a few of you write in to mention the all-grain DVD, and I want to assure you that I'm, I'm working as fast as I can on that project. Um, Steve and I have shot all the uh, main segments, and I'm down to the editing and graphic stage now, so hang in there. I'm, I'm hoping that it won't be too much longer. Um, by the way, I plan to do a special pre-release version uh, for Basic, Brew, uh, Basic Brewing Radio listeners, and I hope that you'll uh, help me when I do do that pre-release by uh, providing some valuable feedback um, before I go any further with the uh, publishing process. And speaking of all grain, Brian from St. Paul, Minnesota writes in to say he's acquired two five-gallon beverage coolers free of charge. Well, you can't beat free. Uh, Brian's wondering if he could use the coolers as mash and louder tons for step mashing and split the grains between the two coolers because he's concerned that one five-gallon cooler would not hold enough water for a step mash with all the grain and the false bottom. Uh, Brian also says he's picked up a 40-quart aluminum stockpot for his boil and wonders if aluminum would give him any off flavors. Well, first of all, Brian, aluminum is just fine to use for brew pots. In fact, uh, Steve Wilkes recently bought a very nice one, and we've uh, brewed some great beers in it. And um, I, I traditionally brew with an enamel uh, brew pot, and I, but I've got my eye on a, an aluminum pot of my own. As far as splitting the mash between coolers, um, you may not need to split the mash with beers of moderate original gravity. I have a 10-gallon beverage cooler that I use as a, a mash and louder ton, so I'm not certain. But with beers that call for 10 or 12 pounds of grain with a single temperature infusion mash with the mash out at the end, you may be able to use a 5-gallon cooler with no problem. Homebrew stores do sell 5-gallon cooler setups. However, with bigger beers, uh, like the one we brewed for the Blind Mice Brew a couple episodes ago, you would have an issue. Uh, Casey had a 48-quart cooler, and after adding 25 pounds of grain, 25 quarts of water, and enough water to bring us up to mash-out temperature, that thing was nearly full. Uh, Now, I don't see a problem with splitting the mash between two coolers other than it being twice as much work and twice as much cleanup. What you may want to look at is using your 40-quart brew pot as a mash ton and using direct heat to reach your step-mashing uh, rest temperatures. Just be sure to stir as you gradually add the heat to keep the mash from scorching. Then you'd have less water at the end of your mash than if you were to do it in the cooler and add boiling water to reach your temperatures. It may just be something that you'll have to work out over a couple of batches to find what you're comfortable with and what works for you. So congratulations on getting the coolers, though, Brian, and um, let us know how your new system works. Finally, Matthew from Shelby, Michigan, writes on the day he brewed his first batch of homebrew. Uh, Matthew writes, I have a question about the airlock. I filled it up about halfway with a water and star sand mix. My question is, is the solution supposed to be around the outside of the center of the airlock and inside the center or just around the outside? I just looked and my solution is around the middle and in the middle where the plastic piece fits over. Well, Matthew, I think what is what's happening with your airlock is kind of it's kind of working in reverse, at least at the moment that you looked at it. Uh, if your wort is warmer than the ambient temperature in your room when you initially seal your fermenter, then the wort is going to cool 
and draw air into the airlock until the temperature equalizes. If you're using a two-piece airlock, the vacuum may pull the liquid in the airlock to the inner part, as you're seeing, and it may even suck the opening closed uh, temporarily. Now, if you leave it alone, the fermenting yeast will eventually start creating CO2 and start pushing air out of the fermenter and uh, re reverse that situation that you're seeing. However, if you want to, once the uh, wort's temperature is stabilized, you can even out the levels in the airlock by taking it off and, and quickly putting it right back on. Now, this phenomenon is the reason I try not to get my airlocks too full in the beginning of fermentation because there is the possibility that the airlock liquid may be drawn backwards as the wort cools and may be sucked into the wort. And now, chances are a little tap water or whatever you use won't make a difference, but it's just another thing to look at in avoiding uh, contamination. Now, one more thing before we get into this week's interview. I don't usually ask listeners to contribute input or to vote on uh, other websites or forums, but I've, I've seen some really kind comments about the show on the Frapper Map and on, on Podcast Alley and uh, other brewing forums out there on the web, and I I really appreciate those. I'd love to see what people say about the show uh, without prompting from me, you know, asking you to, to do that. I'd love to see the honest, unsolicited uh, feedback that's out there. However, I have noticed that the iTunes Music Store podcast directory now allows you to rate podcasts and add comments about each show. Um iTunes is an important and very visible way uh, for people to find this podcast. So I just wanted to let you all know that the feature has been added to the iTunes Music Store's podcast directory. So there you go. If you just you know if you just happen to be browsing the iTunes Music Store podcast directory and stumble across the listening for uh, or, or you know, the listing for Basic Brewing Radio. And, and you want to leave a kind comment? Well, you know, that's that's up to you. So the, the, the iTunes Music Store podcast directory. I just want to let you know that new feature is out there. <laughs> okay, enough self-promotion. Um, on to our interview with uh, Chris Colby, editor of Brew Your Own Magazine. In the January issue of uh, BYO, Chris wrote an article about Vienna lagers. And he joins us this week to talk about the style and how to create one of our own. We're talking, it's, you know, it's getting colder and it's uh, time to talk about lagers. And specifically, uh, we're here to talk about Vienna lagers today. And where else would you go to talk about uh, Vienna lagers than the country of? Mexico. How, what's up with that? Why, why, why talk about uh, Mexican beers when we're talking about Vienna lagers? Well, it's a it's kind of interesting story behind that. Uh, Vienna lager was um, originated in, uh, of all places, Vienna. And what happened though is that the the style of beer fell out of favor in Europe, and and they basically quit brewing it for a while. It, it's it's back now in in a limited manner, but. Uh, where uh, brewers really sort of carried the torch with the style was in Mexico. Uh, European uh, immigrants who went over to Mexico brought the uh, brought the style along with them, and they, and they brewed that there for years. Um, probably the most famous example of a, of a Mexican style Vienna Lager is uh, Negro Modelo, 
brewed by uh, Cerveceria Modelo in uh, Mexico, and uh, it's widely available here in the the United States, and that's pretty good example of a and widely it's a good example and a widely available example of a Mexican Vienna lager. And, and we can even get it here in the uh, the beer desert of Northwest Arkansas. So oh really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, so it does have some penetration, I guess. Yeah. If it reaches you guys. How uh, and and you know I'm I'm being somewhat facetious. We we do get some good beers here, but but not nearly as good as uh, other areas. Uh, so how would you describe uh, a Vienna Lager? Uh, Vienna Lager is probably the the best like uh, short description of it is just like a little Oktoberfest. It's um, uh, a lightly malty beer, um, lightly to moderately malty, uh, with you know, moderate hops. The hops are basically only enough to balance out the malt and not uh, not to distract from it. It's you know, a moderate gravity beer, uh, usually sort of a light amber color. And uh, basically, if you think about Oktoberfests, they're they're beers that start out at about you know, 1060 or so, and they range the color for range in, in color from you know dark golden to you know a fairly deep amber. Uh, basically. Vienna lagers are like if you take the darker end of the color range and just drop the gravity down to, uh, you know, between 1.040 and 1.050. And let's let's dissect it. Uh, let's let's talk about the the components of the of the recipe and and start with the uh, start with the base malt. What do we start with with a Vienna lager? Um, you have a few choices. Your your best, of course, is uh, to use Vienna malt. Uh, Vienna malt is a base malt that's kilned a little bit uh, darker than uh, Pilsner malts. You know, most Pilsner malts come in at about, you know, between one and a half and two, love a bond. And Vienna malts uh, range from usually around three to six. Uh, with most of the stuff you can get as a homebrewer is in the three to four range. And, um, you know, contrast that to like a Munich malt, where you know light Munich malt is is in the you know in the vicinity of eight degrees level bond and a dark Munich is in the vicinity of twenty, so Vienna's kind of intermediate between Pilsner and uh, Munich. So would the would the uh, the additional roasting give it more of a a roasty roasty flavor than a Pilsner malt? Yeah, it gives. It's not really a roasty flavor. It's uh, it, it's similar in a lot of ways to uh, a light Munich malt if you've ever made. Uh, a beer that was either entirely or mostly of, you know, light Munich. There's a that very characteristic malty, melanoidin-rich flavor of uh, Munich malt. Uh, Vienna has there's a little less of that melanoidin-y malty thing to it, but it's it's also got a, uh, a character to it that's described as like either like lightly toasty or lightly nutty or lightly biscuity, and I mean that's. You know, using the English language, that's about as close as you can get to, you know, explaining it. But if you taste it, it it's a very distinct taste. Vienna malt has, just like just like Munich malt has a very distinct taste, uh, Vienna malt has a very distinct taste. And, and a, in my opinion, a very, you know, good one. It's a great, great base malt. If you're an extract brewer, either you haven't moved into all-grain brewing yet or you haven't have the, had the time uh, to go into all-grain brewing, is there a way that you can get uh, the Vienna malt taste into an extract beer? Yes, Weiermann uh, Malting. They make a uh, an extract called uh, Vienna Red, and this is a blended malt extract. 
that's made from, uh, or it's an extract made from a blend of Vienna malt, Pilsner, and a little bit of melanoidin malt. And that's a, uh, a good base malt to use uh, if you're making a uh, extract Vienna beer. Also, um, you can, if you just want to use a light malt extract, a generic light malt extract as a base, you can uh, do a specialty grain steep of Vienna malt. Um, you have to make sure that your temperature is between 150 and 158, and you have to make sure that uh, you don't add too much water because when you're, you know, quote-unquote steeping Vienna malt, what you're really doing is a partial mash. But, yeah, you can uh, you can make an extract uh, Vienna lager. It's not that hard. And that's that's a that's a good point to to bring out. And, and mini mashing is probably a good a good subject for a whole show. But uh, when you're using a base malt like uh, like this Vienna malt, it's not just steeping the the grain to get the flavor. You're actually trying to convert those starches into sugars, right? So, uh, what what ratio of water to malt should they use? And and get you know a little bit more into the detail of that. Right. Whenever you do a uh a just normal specialty grain steep, your temperature can be, um, you know, just about anything, and you have a wide variety of different, uh, you know, uh, grain-to-water ratios that you can use. Um, you don't want to go over 170 degrees, but anything... No, generally you don't, and generally you don't want to steep, um, you know, a small amount of grains in a very, very large amount of water. Like, a lot of recipes will tell you to you know, put all the water you're going to boil into there, and then, you know, you steep like a half pound of something, and that's not really a good idea. But you can do a partial mash following, you know, using the same procedure as a, as a steep if you just watch the temperature and the uh, the liquid-to-grain ratios. The temperature, as I said before, should stay between, uh, you know, 150 degrees and 158 degrees Fahrenheit. And a good uh, liquid-to-grain ratio is about one and a half quarts per pound of grain. That's uh, just a little thinner than sort of an optimal mash temperature, but that gives you a little, you know, allows for a little bit of room in there that uh, your grains aren't going to be in just because they're, you know, contained in the steeping bag. Mm-hmm. And it's still it's still within the overall, uh, o- no, uh, overall span of, you know, acceptable mash thicknesses. But you know, one and a half quarts per pound of uh, grain is—that's where I do all my. Um, if I'm doing an extract beer, and, and you know, a partial mash, I, I do them all in that range, and they work great. You know, you, there's enough water there to, to, you know, hydrate the grain and get the, uh, get the the grain thoroughly wet and the conversion to done, and then, you know, you just yank the bag out, rinse it with a little water, and you're done. It's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. So what about uh, what about uh, specialty malts or or to go along with our our Vienna malts? What what are we uh, going to have to to uh, get as far as specialty malts? Well, there's a, a wide variety of different things that you can add to a Vienna malt base to get uh, you know uh, different flavors in a Vienna lager. Um, personally, and one thing I, I mentioned in this article in uh, BYO is that you don't really need a lot of different things in, in a Vienna malt. It's it's a beer that doesn't really benefit from a lot of complexity. So, I mean, I give a number of different malts that you can use, but I sort of recommend that, you know, you keep them to a minimum. Uh, you can, for example, you, two other base malts that you can use in a Vienna lager are Pilsner and Munich if you want to, you know, round out 
Uh, you know, if you want to lighten the color a little bit with some Pilsner, if you want to darken it a little bit with some Munich, that's fine. Um, also, crystal malts, if you go really easy on them, you know, uh, I recommend under, you know, three-quarters of a pound per five gallons. And even that might be uh, on the high end. I, I would probably go under a half pound. But, uh, you know, a little bit of caramel malt in, in the medium color range, you know, from 30 to 60 love a bond. Uh, you can add just a little bit of sweetness and you want to add, you want, you know, you might want to add enough so that there's a little bit of color and a tiny amount of sweetness, but you don't really want a big caramel flavor to compete with the, uh, the flavor of the, the Vienna malt in the base. So, so you're really looking for a clean, uh, a clean plate, so to speak, for the, for the Vienna malt to stand out. Yeah. Um, if you think about, uh, like an Oktoberfest, when you, when you tasted a good Oktoberfest, um, some of those are made with Vienna, some are made with uh, Munich, and you know some are blends of Pilsner Munich and Vienna of, of all kinds. But, but when you think about the, the beer in general, uh, you know it's a malty beer, and although there might be a little bit of caramel malt in some of those, it, it's the base malt that's really you know uh, in the forefront of that beer. Everything else from the hopping to the uh, you know uh, the use of specialty malts or whatever comes you know in support of the base malt. Uh, in an Oktoberfest, and in a Vienna malt or in a Vienna lager, it's the same thing. It's just a, you know, like a scaled down version of an Oktoberfest made with a Vienna malt. And also in your article, you uh, mentioned using corn as an adjunct. Right. Um, of course, European versions never uh, use corn as an adjunct. Uh, but when brewers came over to the New World, over to Mexico, um, you know, they adapted their their brewing to local customs and. Uh, you know, in North America, uh, most uh, breweries, uh, you know, used corn as an adjunct uh, for a couple reasons. One, it was cheaper usually. And second of all, uh, and although now this doesn't really matter too much, but originally a lot of brewers over here used six-row malts, which contained more protein. And so adding the corn as an adjunct uh, sort of cut the level of protein in a beer since corn is a very low protein level. So... You know, if you wanted to make, like, uh, you know, a clone of, like, a Mexican Vienna lager, um, like, you know, Dos Equis Amber or uh, Negro Modelo, you might want to add up to about 20% uh, corn, you know, into your grist. You can use either uh, grits or polenta if you want to do a cereal mash, or you can use flaked maize if you just want to stir it into the mash. Or if you're an extract brewer, you can just use uh, brewer's corn syrup and, and just pour that into the, uh, into the kettle when you boil. So uh, you said that uh, it's a it's a fairly malty beer. So what hops would you use, and and what uh, uh, what is their uh, impact on the flavor profile? Yeah, the hops. All all you need the hops to do in this style really is to back up the malt uh, character of the beer and not make it seem like overly sweet. Uh, the the best hops for a Vienna Lager are just ones that don't have a strong uh, varietal characteristic to them. You want something that's you know going to provide, you know, a nice, smooth, hot bitterness, but not really call attention to itself. Uh, some real obvious choices are, are any of the German noble hops, you know, anything that w- might be used in an Oktoberfest is certainly a good candidate for a Vienna lager. Um, if you're brewing a Mexican Vienna lager, you know, something like Mount Hood or, uh, you know, Willamette or even Clusters, you know, should work just fine. Uh, I put in the article, my favorite personally is, is Tetnanger. I like I just like the flavor. That's a noble hop, and it's got 
just a hint of like uh, they call it spiciness. I mean, you just sort of have to taste the, the hop to know what they're talking about. But tastes good in a in a Vienna Lager and an Oktoberfest, I think. So you wouldn't you're you're looking for for fairly clean bitterness and not something like a citrusy or fruity hop. No, you don't want a big like uh, you know American Pale Ale uh, you know citrusy hop explosion. You want just a, a nice clean. You know, solid hot bitterness behind it, but not um, not a lot of IBUs and not a lot of character in the hops either. You know, like a, you don't want a you know a Centennial or an Amarillo kind of you know uh, presence where you you know you taste it and the, you know, the hop has a very distinct distinct you know character. You want more just of a sort of clean bittering. I would assume that that you're adding most of your hops, if not all of your hops, for bittering and not for flavor, right? Yeah, that's true. The uh, the simplest way to hop a, a Vienna Lager, and the way I always do it, is just, or almost always do it, this is a single addition uh, at the you know one hour to go mark. Uh, if you boil, you know, uh, if you shoot for between twenty and twenty five IBUs, uh, you know, all in one addition at an hour, you'll get, you know, a little bit of Flavor and aroma will carry over, but, you know, not very much. Mostly it'll just be the straight hot bitterness. And, uh, you know, you get you get the right character for a Vienna because you want, in the finish of a Vienna, you want it to be mostly the malt, you know. So you, uh, if, if you want, you can add a little bit of flavor hops and, you know, it would be untraditional, but you could, you could add a little bit of aroma hops if you just simply had to. But, you know, it's best just to, it's best and also easiest just to add them all in one dose. And, and we're saying that you you know you shouldn't or you can't uh, you know add ingredients at certain times or whatever. But you know it's your own homebrew. You can do what you want. We're just talking about trying to meet the style, right? Right. Yeah. Obviously, one of the one of the funnest things in homebrewing is just being able to you know experiment and create your own beer from a you know from like go from a thought in your head to you know something that's uniquely yours or whatever. But everything I'm saying today is just. Uh, with respect to trying to brew something that's, you know, similar enough to a, a normal Vienna lager that people would recognize it as such. And uh, for the yeast, uh, obviously we're going to be using a lager yeast. Yeah, um, lager yeast, you really, uh, really just about any lager yeast will do well. Um, the best choices are uh, any lager yeast designed for a maltier kind of beer. Obviously the Oktoberfest strains here are an a awesome choice. Uh, but also, like a, a strain that'll work good in a bow pills or a Bach, uh, those work really nice. I mean, I have my favorite strain, which is a White Labs uh, Old Bavarian Lager, which is a seasonal strain of theirs. And I don't know, I just, for whatever reasons, I've tried that and, and like it quite a bit. Um, but really, you have a wide variety of, of choices here. And uh, the yeast, you know, in, in a lager... Uh, and especially in this style, all you really want is, is a yeast that's going to do a nice job and, uh, you know, support the uh, the malt presence of the beer. Okay, what about water? Are there any, uh, there any water considerations for a Vienna lager? Um, as with a yeast, you have a pretty ra- pretty wide range of uh, different kinds of water you can use. Um, the, the best water is going to be something that's sort of moderately hard and, and moder- moderately carbonate rich. But really, unless your water is just, you know, extremely soft, or extremely hard, um, you know, any sort of quote-unquote medium water will do pretty good, you know. And if you've got really soft water, all you need to do is throw in, you know, a little bit of gypsum and a little bit of chalk, 
and you know if you have very hard water just dilute it you know with uh distilled water it's water uh isn't a real critical uh aspect of a vienna lager okay we've got our we've pretty much covered our ingredients right mm-hmm. now we're ready to go into the mash what uh what's our schedule for mashing well uh for the mash you have uh a variety of options i mean as with any modern malt, you can do a single infusion malt if you want to with Vienna Lager. You know, uh, if you wanted to do an hour rest at 152, that would make, you know, a perfectly decent uh, work, you know, for your lager. Um, you're probably better off, um, and you, you make a little uh, little more authentic tasting beer if you do a step mash. You can do, um, I do all, like, single step mashes with these. I'll... Uh, I'll mash in the grains and the water in my kettle at usually anywhere in the beta-glucan range. I usually go on the high end around, you know, 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Rest there for about uh, 15 minutes, and then... And and what will that do for you? uh, What that'll do is it'll it'll get rid of a lot of the beta-glucans in there. Those are the sort of gums in the malt, and that'll just help you... uh, It'll help help in your loudering. Any type of low-temperature rest is going to help a little bit with your fermentability, um... Rests around uh, 140 degrees uh, Fahrenheit do the most in that respect, but really any any low temperature rest, you know, any step mash you do, pretty much is going to provide a more fermentable wort than um, a single infusion mash. And that will help us uh, get a get a cleaner tasting beer with a little less less body. Yeah, exactly. And so after your uh, after your initial rest. In the, the beta glucan range, you know, uh, 121 to 131 Fahrenheit, you can go up uh, to your sacrific- uh, your sacrification temperatures, and you have a couple options here too. If you want to do uh, just a single rest in, in the sort of in the normal sacrification range, you can do that, and um, that's that's a good thing to do if you're shooting for like an American craft brew version of a Vienna Lager. Like, I usually, when I make my Vienna lagers, I'll do the the low-temperature rest, and then I'll come up to about 154 and rest there, uh, usually for about 45 minutes. Um, If you want a little bit more fermentable wort, you know, one that's more uh, in tune with a Mexican Vienna-style lager, you might want to bring it up to um, between 148 and 150 degrees Fahrenheit and hold it there for maybe a half hour, then boost it up to um, 158 to 160 or, you know, even up to 162 degrees Fahrenheit and hold it mm. there for another 15 minutes uh, before mashing out, and that'll give you a, a little bit more fermentable work. You have an option, uh, you know, essentially from a single uh, single infusion rest to, you know, you can do a one-step mash uh, from the low temperature up to 154, or you can go a two-step mash with, you know, the low temperature followed by, you know, something low in the, the sacrification range, then to something high in the sacrification range, and then the mash out. Now, for the for the boil, for all-grain brewers, you suggest a 90-minute boil. Yeah, most most all-grain beers are going to benefit from a 90-minute boil. You get, uh, with, um, you know, going beyond the, the normal sort of 60-minute boil to a 90-minute boil, you get a little better hot break, which is going to help you with your with your clarity and also your stability of the beer and also um a lot of home brewers are finding these days that it's good to it's good to boil for like 15 minutes to a half hour first before adding the hops you know get some hot break developed and then because the theory is uh 
if you wait for some hot break to develop and then throw in the, the hops, you're going to get a better presentation for them because, as the theory goes, if you, if you throw them in right at the beginning of the boil, uh, they're somehow going to get mixed up and coated by hot break as it forms, hmm. and, and it can lower your, uh, your hop utilization. I mean, that's, that's just the theory I've heard. I don't know if, if that's been tested, but uh, in sort of practical home brewing, in, since I've been doing this, uh, boiling for 90 minutes and waiting you know, for a little while until I had the hops, I've really uh, thought it's improved my beer quite a bit. And do you skim the hot break? Uh, I never do. There are, uh, you know, in in the early days, uh, you know, when I was reading a lot about brewing, there was, you know, there's always options to do a little bit more during the brew day, and, you know, you can skim this, you can measure this, and these days I'm sort of getting to the point where I'm willing to do stuff if I know that this is going to make my beer better, but for something like wort skimming, I've had so many batches where I've never done it, and it's turned out, you know, just fine. And I've had many batches where I've done it, and I couldn't really tell, you know, taste any difference from my other beers. But nowadays I just figure, oh, well, I'm not going to bother. But it won't hurt to skim the hot break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, if I had any evidence that it really, you know, made a tasteable difference, I would get in there and skim it every time. But nowadays I just, you know, I'm like, that's just going to be an extra, you know, thing to clean at the end. <laughs> Practical brewing, not lazy brewing, but pa- practical, uh, practical brewing. Yeah, there's a difference. I mean, you can the of you know the time that goes into you know doing that and cleaning the stuff afterwards, you can spend on something valuable like you know drinking beer. Sure, sure, I'm all for that. Uh, now let's talk about uh, let's talk about let's get into we we cool down our our uh, wort and since it is a lager. Uh, you're going to have a, probably a different approach than uh, from an ale uh, batch. Yeah, when you when you make a lager, you want to, um, you know, you've got a you've got a longer uh, stretch of temperatures to cool the wort down through. With an ale, you, you cool it down to you know between 68 and 72 usually, but with a lager, you, you need to get it down to like uh, 50 or 55, and so you need to do a little bit of extra work. Um, most of the time, you know, if you're if you're one of those people who are lucky enough to, you know, if you're brewing way up in the mountains or way up north where your, you know, tap water is just about freezing, then, you know, you can probably just go about your normal cooling procedure, you know, with your immersion wort chiller and just, you know, go a few extra minutes and you'll cool down. But if you're, you know, if you're living anywhere else where your, uh, your tap water temperature probably is actually above the, you know, lager fermentation temperature, you're going to have to do something a little extra to get the temperature down at the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in this article, I, I present a couple different options. There's, I mean, they all start with using your tap water and your immersion chiller to cool down the wort, you know, as far as you can get it. Um, and then, you know, you can either use your immersion chiller as a pre-chiller leading to uh, a counterflow chiller. That works pretty well. Or you can use, uh, you can use your immersion chiller uh, with a little, if you take one of those drill pumps you get at like Home Depot uh-huh. and like two short lengths of hose, you can just recirculate uh, water through an ice bath through your immersion chiller and use that to cool down the last little bit. Since you've already cooled down the water or, or the wort with your tap water, um, you're not just going to melt all the ice, you know, instantly. You'll uh, actually be able to get, uh, you know, a good 15 to 20 degrees. Uh, Fahrenheit cooling out of something like that, 
Um, other ways are some people actually use their immersion chiller as a post chiller where you siphon the wort out through the immersion chiller so uh, uh, it actually goes through the, the inside coil and that coil is stuck in an ice bath hmm. and then you know the outflow goes into the fermenter and uh, you know that works very very well because you know the, the wort flows through the chiller in a you know tiny volume and it's surrounded by ice water and that'll that'll cool it down really well. Um, of course, that that presents a few more challenges as far as uh, cleaning and, and yeah, sanitizing. Yeah, a lot of home brewers are a little little leery about that because we're used to being able to see virtually every surface that our work touches, you know. But uh, you know, as long as you run you know run some cleaner through it, uh, clean it out good, it, you'll should have sanitized it when you know you're using it to, in the beginning to cool down the uh, the work. Hmm. Uh, so, but I mean, some, some people are just a little bit leery about that. And, and the final option I mentioned is just, you can siphon your, your beer off to your fermenter and just stick it in some kind of swamp cooler, you know, something with a little bit of ice water in the bottom and, a, and like a wet t-shirt over it until you get the, it down to temperature. But the, the bad thing about that option is it just takes a while. Now, now continue on. We've we've got to pitch our yeast, and we we've gotten down to uh, our pitching temperatures of, uh, do you say, around fifty five? Yeah, the the typical ale fermentation range is in the fifty to fifty five range. Or lager, lager fermentation. Right. Um, for a couple of the uh, for a couple of the Oktoberfest strains, though, the the uh, fermentation temperature range, the the optimal they quote, goes up to about fifty eight, and you can even in a Vienna lager, you can even push it. To you know, 60 if you want to, or maybe even 62 uh, if you've you know pitched enough yeast and aerated well. And this will, because it's a, a relatively low gravity beer, you're not going to develop a lot of uh, you know uh, fermentation byproducts from you know yeast strain. Uh, so you can you can push the temperature a little bit on a Vienna Lager. And I mean, just personally, I think uh, you know you don't you don't want to develop the full you know full on like ale level of esters but i think just getting a little bit more character from your yeast in a vienna lager uh is a good thing because you get uh it just sort of rounds out the beer it, it plays nicely with the uh with the malt background i think and uh i don't know i've, I've always done that in in the vienna lagers i've made and you even mentioned that uh you can ferment the lager uh yeast at ale temperatures if you're stuck somewhere and you just absolutely can't get uh your your wort down to uh the the lager fermentation range but you still want to make a, a beer that sort of fundamentally tastes like a lager you can actually ferment uh using a lager strain at ale temperatures you'll get uh the beer that results isn't going to taste exactly like you know uh exactly as clean as a, a lager done the normal way but it does taste, uh, you know, it does taste significantly lager-like. You know, usually the sort of standard uh, or conventional wisdom in homebrewing, uh, if someone, you know, goes on one of the online forums and says, hey, I want to make a beer, you know, that's like a lager, but I can't get my temperature down, most people will tell them, you know, use a very clean ale yeast strain, ale yeast strain like, uh, you know, Y-Yeast 1056 or uh, White Labs California Ale. Or, you know, if you can get the temperature down to around 65, use one of the steam beer strains for making, you know, uh, 
uh, steam beers, and it's sort of a lager slash ale strain that works well around 65. But actually, I mean, if you really want to brew a lager beer, you can just do it uh, and get more lager-like results uh, by just fermenting a lager warm. You know, you'll get you'll get a little more uh, esters in there, but you know, it's, it's really not not too bad, especially if you can hold the temperature, you know, down below 65 or something, you know, uh, it does, it does surprisingly well, uh, a lot better than, I mean, a lot of homebrewers are really skeptical about that, because I've mentioned this a few times that, you know, on online forums and just talking to people, but it really does work pretty well. And you, you say that if you, if you do use a lager yeast at an ale temperature, uh, you you make a a bigger starter than normal and and make sure that, and aerate your wort well. Yeah, you want to um, you want to minimize, of course, the amount of esters in your lager because you know in a, in a standard lager there really should be pretty much none. Uh, but in in a warm temperature lager, you're going to get a few, um, and, and you just want to do everything you can to minimize them. So you really need to make you know uh, a decent sized yeast starter you know, at least as big as you would for a normal lager, if not a little bit more, just for a little bit cleaner fermentation. Also, you you really want to aerate well because uh, under aeration is one thing that really spurs ester production, so you want to make sure the, uh, the lager is aerated really well. Uh, the only downside of this, of course, is when, you know, warm temperatures plus a lot of aeration plus a lot of yeast means you're going to get uh, the yeast attenuating at the high end of their range so uh, if you want to, you know, counter that, you might want to mash, you know, a couple degrees higher or, you know, uh, add just a little bit more caramel malt or something to, uh, you know, counteract that because you might, uh, you know, you might get the beer a little bit more dry than you want. You know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, you know, terribly much more drier, but, you know, the, the uh, combination of, you know, fermenting at a little bit higher temperature, you know, a little bit bigger starter, and more aeration is going to lead to, you know, perhaps a little bit more attenuation than you want. And then if, if you if you can, if you are in a position where you uh, can get down to lagering temperatures, after primary fermentation, uh, you rack into a secondary and then go into a lagering stage, right? Yeah, if, you, if you've got... Um, like I have a, a chest freezer that I've modified as a fermentation chamber, so I can I can lager my beer and then uh, let the temperature rise for a diacetyl rest if you need it, and then um, you know take it to lagering. And one key with a, with a Vienna lager or really with any sort of lighter lager is you definitely want to get uh, the beer off the yeast as quickly as possible. Um, back in the, in the beginning. Oh, or for me, back in the beginning, when I started homebrewing, uh, one of the first books I read was uh, Dave Miller's book. And in it, he kept on going on and on about how you need to get the you know the beer off the yeast so that, you know, you don't have uh, autolysis mm-hmm. and you don't taste, you know, these rubbery, uh, sulfury off-characters of the yeast. And, you know, so for years I was really worried about this when I was making my ales. And it took, you know, numerous times of just being lazy and not wrecking my beer to... <laughs> To realize that with ales, it's not really that big of a problem. I mean, you really have to leave an ale on, a, on yeast for a long time, at least with most strains, to pick up any off character. But with lagers, once the yeast flocculates out, uh, 
it's like the clock is ticking, mm. and you need to get uh, you need to get the beer off the yeast. And it's doubly true with uh, with lighter beers. Like I've made uh, just this year, I made uh, a couple Heineken clones with a different couple kinds of yeast, and I left uh, left them on the yeast maybe only a day or two longer than I should have. And I can still taste a little bit of sort of an undercurrent there of that, you know, nutty, sulfury, wow. uh, yeasty uh, taste to it. And some of that lagers out with time, but some of it doesn't. So in a Vienna, it's it's lightly flavored overall, or moderately flavored, I guess would be a better uh, description. But, yeah, you want to, uh, once primary fermentation is done, once your uh, diastole rest is done, if you need a diastole rest, uh, get it quickly off the yeast and into uh, you know either either a corny keg or a secondary uh, carboy and you know start dropping the temperature for lagering. And it's and it's handy uh, it's handy if you've got a, ref- a freezer with a, a temperature control, but uh, but you can use uh, ice chests and and uh, ice baths and things like that to uh, to do that. And we've talked a bit about that in the in the past. Uh, about people who are brewing even ales in in warm temperatures like Hawaii, uh, who are you know looking for ways to to moderate their temperature a bit. Uh, so you you can be creative in the, in those ways. Yeah, it's it's a little bit harder. I mean, using like a, a swamp cooler or you know trying an, an ice bath, you you really need you need quite a bit of ice to to get the kind of temperatures you need, and you know you need to keep uh, you need to keep at it. You know, like every morning you wake up, you got to put the ice on and you know, midday, change the ice, and before you go to bed. So it can be done, but at least, I don't know, at least at, at Texas temperatures, I've found that that's, it's pretty hard to do. Well, the, um, it's you've, possible. It's yeah. hard. <laughs> well, you've got, uh, you've got, what, three recipes in with the article in BYO uh, for uh, Vienna lagers? Yeah, I threw in uh, uh, two recipes for uh, basically a Mexican Vienna style lager. Uh, one, uh, an extract recipe where you, you steep a little uh, Vienna malt, or actually it's partial mashing it. Um, and then I also put in an all-grain Vienna lager that's maybe not a clone of Dos Equis Amber, but your beer is going to be fairly similar. And then I also just threw in uh, an all-grain Vienna lager. This is just one that I've made a couple times that I've really liked. And, uh, yeah, it's, all that's in that. In the one that I do, it's just it's Vienna malt, a little bit of Cara Munich, and that's it for the grain bill. One addition of Tettnanger hops, and uh, you know that's the whole recipe. Sometimes the the simplest way to go is the best. Yeah, especially with Vienna lagers. Um, you know there are there are some recipes or, or there are some beer styles that that benefit from a complicated recipe where you know you really want a lot of complexity and you want you know this flavor and that flavor and you know, uh, there are other flavors like, you know, a good Oktoberfest. When you think of a good like, Oktoberfest, uh, you know, there's not a lot of complexity to the beer. It's got that nice maltiness that just sort of carries the day. You know, there's the hops are in support of it, but, you know, they're, they're second fiddle. The, uh, you know, there's not a lot of yeast-derived fermentation characteristics, you know, and uh, it's just about the malt. And uh, a good Vienna lager is like that. I mean, it's... It's got that really nice taste from Vienna malt, and everything else should be in support of that. And really, when it, when it comes to brewing one, you know, your success or failure isn't going to come from, you know, having a recipe with, with the right amount of this or that. It's just going to be 
you know, how good how good of a brewer are you? How well did you pay attention to, you know, all your steps and, you know, uh, you know, especially like did you rack on time? Did you, you know, mm-hmm. do all do everything else, you know, that you should have on time? Well, I, I enjoyed reading the article, and I appreciate your time again, and uh, hopefully we will uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, and I would uh, encourage any uh, homebrewers out there who haven't tried a Vienna lager to give it a try. I mean, they're, uh, for me, it's one of my favorite styles, and I think, uh, I think it's been a little overlooked in the past. I mean, it, it's sort of the uh, ugly stepsister to uh, Oktoberfest, as a lot of, uh, a lot of people look at it, but it's... Uh, it's a style that's really worth uh, worth doing and doing well, I think. Well, thanks again to Chris Colby of Brew Your Own Magazine for joining us this week. You can read Chris's article on Vienna Lagers in the January issue of Brew Your Own Magazine if you click on the BYL banner on basicbrewingradio.com. You can get a free copy of the issue. And if you decide to subscribe after you're getting um, your free issue, you'll be helping to support this podcast. Next week, we'll hear an interview with Ray Daniels, author of Designing Great Beers, as we talk about hop bitterness and the factors in brewing that influence IBUs. I hope hope everybody has a very happy and prosperous New Year. Be careful if you're celebrating the New Year, and uh, don't forget to eat your black-eyed peas on New Year's Day, and uh, you you can chase them down with a great homebrew for an extra measure of good luck going into 2006. If you have uh, brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you wanted to get into home brewing for the first time while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step-by-step You can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD while you're on the site. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. But that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website, as always, is provided by Kelly Dotson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long. (laughs) 